Welcome to John's Post-Life Crisis. I am your host, John Johnston, founder of CornNation.com, your Nebraska Cornhusker site for SB Nation. Today we're talking with photographer Ken Jureski. How are you doing today, Ken? Doing well, John. How are you doing? It's been a fun day. I've already tried to get into one accident, but I did I did solve a a really difficult problem for a customer, so um, they were happy with that anyway. I'm going to, for people that don't know who you are, I'm going to read something from your Wikipedia page. First of all, you have a Wikipedia page. I certainly do not. But uh, Ken Jureski is an American photojournalist, author, editor, and war correspondent. He has worked in more than 80 countries and has been featured in Life magazine, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, and others. You are a White House photographer in the Ronald Reagan years, covered demonstrations in Tiananmen Square and the first Gulf War, and you've shot nine Olympic games since 1988. Uh, that's a pretty impressive resume. I mean, can you get any more accomplished than that? Well, I, I don't know. I just... I. I don't, I, I just, I never, I never stopped to look, look back at my resume, I guess you'd call it. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm hungry to do the next thing, to be honest. So you're so still, I'm, you're still active and working and doing stuff now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I mean, I was basically retired by the industry, you know, we, the the photo the, the the editorial photography the photojournalism business has uh, you know I didn't leave it it left me and it did that by uh, doing things like like uh, forcing photographers to sign work for hire agreements um, to turn over their copyright of their work so I was I was a contract photographer. I was one of the last contract photographers for Life Magazine. After that, I was a contract photographer for Time Magazine. And then after that, I was a contract photographer for U.S. News and World Report. And so what a contract photographer, the reason there is such a thing is under U.S. law, if you're, if you're under contract, you retain ownership of your copyright. If you're a staff photographer, you know, for the Omaha World Herald or Lincoln Journal Star, you know, you have retirement, they pay for your equipment, they, uh, they give you a car, whatever. You've got these, these benefits that come with being a staff photographer, but they also uh, own, own the copyright of your images. It's basically their images. So every, every picture I've ever made belongs to me. And when that started to change in the editorial photography, the magazine world, that's when you know, I just couldn't sign those contracts. If that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I got too does, far deep it, into the. It makes sense. I mean, I was, uh, when I shot Minnesota volleyball in the last couple of months, and before one of the matches, there was a bunch of photographers standing around in a room talking about what they were doing. And uh, one of them I talked to was like, working for the Pioneer Press, I believe it was, in St. Paul, and he said they only had three photographers left. 
another guy did say he sold in, you know, the Super Bowl was in Minnesota, what was it, two years ago? I'm getting old, all the years run together. But one of them did say he sold a, a photo to the NFL and, you know, outright sold it so he doesn't have the rights to it anymore. But he did apparently get a fair amount of money for it. Uh, I mean, if, if are these, I, I guess I've been around Getty photographers at events and I've talked to them what, about what they're doing. And they're just basically selling these things on a nickel and dime basis, right? If somebody uses their photo, they get like two bucks on a website or something. No, it's, it's worse than that, John. So, you know, Getty, so the NFL has their own contract. So when you pick up, so say you're shooting the Super Bowl, the NFL has their own contract that um, basically if you use those photos for anything besides the editorial journalistic publication you're shooting for, um, you could get in trouble. So if you, if you shot 10 Super Bowls and then wanted to do a show of your Super Bowl photography, the NFL lawyers would probably shut you down. On the other side of that coin, so say you're, uh, say you have a unique shot and Nike wants to uh, use your, your NFL photo from the Super Bowl uh, for an advertisement. Getty is the official photographer of the NFL, and they're the official photographer of the NBA and um, the PBA. What, they're, they're, they're official photographer most of the uh, professional sports in the country. So if Nike wants to use that photo of yours, they're under, they're obligated under NFL rules to go to Getty first. And if Getty has a similar image, they're obligated to license that image from Getty. So say, say it's, you know, the licensing fee for an advertisement it could be, it could be a hundred grand. It could be 200 grand depending on, billboards what kind of usage you're getting you know licensing is complicated in that way um well the getty photographer so so the photographer that wasn't shooting for getty that nike first wanted to use their image he doesn't get to that licensing fee because getty has a similar image so then the photographer under contract with getty he doesn't get that licensing fee either Getty gets that entire licensing fee. So that photographer who signed the contract with Getty, there's two different contracts. Or what? I mean, don't quote me on this. These contracts uh, change all the time. But if you're shooting at a sporting event for Getty, more often than not, you are giving them, you're working for a flat fee. And then they get all the licensing money from the, the resale, the relicensing of that image. So whatever Getty's fee is, $300 a day. If they license that image to the NFL, you know, they, li they, they license that NFL image to Nike or, you know, a watch company, whatever. It could be anything. You see the, those advertisements. Um, Getty takes the lion's share of that. If you're under the other contract where you get to share some of the licensing fees so you don't get that, that huge, you know, $300 paycheck up front, whatever it is, um, 
you will get a tiny percentage. And how they do that is they go from, you get these, they, they have these weird subscription models. So say you have the shot from the Super Bowl and it's used in every European publication. Well, those European publications might sub subscribe to Getty Sports Feed. So you get a percentage of all the images they use during that month uh, from Getty Sports Feed. So you might get, that's how you get these checks from Getty for 43 cents. <laughs> You're getting a percentage of your percentage of the usage for the entire month from the subscription fee, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, SB Nation, our site, has contracts with USA Today and Getty. And really what it, what it sounds like is why would anybody do this anymore? Well, what I tell sports photographers, it's very simple. You go to, you know, Lens Rental, one of these, rent, you know, borrowlenses.com, whatever they are. Look up the gear you're using to shoot that football game. So you got your 400-2.8, you got a 70-200-2.8, you got a short lens, you've got two, maybe three bodies. And just figure out what it would cost to rent that gear for one day to do that shoot. That should be the minimum that you ever charge for a shoot. And, you know, when you do those numbers, you're going to find out, wow, that gear, the gear that I paid for, my own personal gear, not only did I pay for it, but I've got insurance on it. If it breaks, if it gets stolen, it's, it's on me. Um, you know, you'll find that, you know, you're working for whatever, two, you know, USA Today Sports, I think they pay like two and a quarter a day, right? Um, you'll find that you couldn't even rent that gear you're using that you need to shoot that game. You couldn't even rent that gear for less than a thousand dollars for that day. Yeah. I, last year I rented a, a Fuji 200 F2 for 300 bucks for a weekend to shoot. Uh, I think it was the spring game or something, but I mean, right. that's, that's one lens and <laughs> one weekend and, I don't think people realize how much money people are carrying around in their hands when they're on the sidelines and how, well, how, yeah. What USA Today Sports figured out. Um, so they, they, USA Today Sports, there was a, there was an organization called, was, Oh, I think you broke up. So sorry. There was a there was another agency that that uh, that bought USA to, that was bought by USA Today. So now it's USA Today Sports. And I don't remember the name of that agency. But what they figured out is, you know, you can find a dentist in Omaha, Nebraska, who is a uh, is a Husker fan. And he'll 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 shoot the game just for the, the the press pass to be on the sidelines, and so they figured out they could pay this guy a hundred dollars, and he would sign away all rights to the images he made, and he's just happy to be there because he's on the sidelines and he's a dentist, so he's got a he's making a living doing something else, and then, uh, you know, 
they'll license those images over and over again. And it, it was a great business model. That's why, you know, USA Today bought them. And so then you have all the USA Today contract photographers and you throw them into the mix. And all of a sudden, it's very hard. That's, that's why Sports Illustrated, that's why you don't see any Sports Illustrated photographers around anymore. They've all been run out of the business. Well, honestly, that's what I do. In my real life, I'm an IT consultant, and I happen to run a website for SB Nation, and they certainly are not paying full-time salaries to people running the majority of their websites. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of crap for that, which I guess I understand, but at the same time, you know, I'm I'm one of those cheese bags that's like, I want to go do this. And, uh, so that you, well, I, this is, I certainly, I don't blame anybody for wanting to do it. Um, I blame, I blame, a, a, you know, sports illustrated. It's in their name. They're known for being this best sports photography that's ever existed in the world. And if you look at their, look at their pedigree, look at their history, Neil Leifer, you know, co-rentmaster, these guys made images that we couldn't even imagine before it was even in many ways technically possible to make these images. These guys are, were incredible. That's the legacy. And so what the publishers at Time Inc., Time Life, whatever it was called, they, they, made, a, they made a bet. And their bet was that we don't have to pay guys like Neil Leifer anymore because a sports photo is a sports photo. And they bet that nobody would notice. And that's why Sports Illustrated is basically, you know, they're not Time Life publications. I think Sports Illustrated was bought by a branding company. Um, Time was bought by a, an, an internet guy. I mean, they're not, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that killed them because, um, if I can go to coronation for free and look at your photography, why am I not going to buy a subscription to Sports Illustrated to look at your photography there? Do you, it's, it's, a, it's a business thing. But do you don't you think people that are end users that are not photographers and they're just consumers, they take photography for granted. I mean People can name sports writers, but you're a photographer. You can name photographers. I bet if we went out and we just, I don't know, called random 100 people who would happen to be sports fans, they wouldn't know the single name of a, of a photographer, would they? No, they don't. They, they probably wouldn't, but they would certainly know it when they see it. They're, you know, this is the thing. It's, it's funny how, how the whole thing works. I was working out of Sports Illustrated's office in uh, during the Beijing Olympics. And at the time, all the Sports Illustrated writers were getting poached by um, ESPN magazine, ESPN the magazine, okay? So ESPN had all those TV dollars, and Sports Illustrated didn't have the TV dollars. So a writer for Sports Illustrated, you know, he'd sign it a contract for two and a half, $3 million a year to leave Sports Illustrated and go to ESPN. So ESPN had this brain drain as far as the writers that, uh, you know, you're talking about. Um, and at the same time, 
they were they were um, moving away from using their resources on the photographers on good photography on great not good photography great photography and so not only did they lose their best writers but then they stopped spending money on the best photography so it's like how can you stay in business doing that it it, it, it all adds up and people people realize that they're like why am i why am i spending you know whatever 29 dollars a year for sports illustrated you know when that uh when the football phone I don't even have a, a phone to plug into the wall anymore. You know, it's just like, what's the, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the draw? And this new, this new, so look at, look at, uh, what's this new, um, website that, uh, it's all subscription based. Oh, the athletic, the athletic, right. Yeah. So they just came out. They've been in business for what a year. And their their valuation came out two or three days ago, and now they're valued at half a million dollars. No, no sorry, five hundred million dollars, right? Yeah, five hundred million dollars. Let me look that up. I don't remember exactly, but at the same time, they're valued in this way. They've gone and they've they've poached all the uh, athletic reaches. 500 million valuation and sign investors are bullish on subscriptions. Okay, so there you go. $500 million. They've been in existence for what? A year, right? So they poached all the, the newspaper writers. You know, the newspapers are struggling. They poached a lot of the best writers in markets across, you know, you've seen it. You know what's happening. Yep. At the I'm, same time, I'm a subscriber. Okay. So at the same time, they, uh, as of, I don't know, three or four months ago, the last time I looked into this, they had no, um, they had no procedures in place to even license or assign photography. Nobody in the whole building had thought about it. And then they immediately came up with this thing, um, it was something ridiculous. They all they, you know, it was like they were doing a story on Runza, right? So they were looking for a photographer in Lincoln or Omaha or wherever. And they wanted three or four pictures of, you know, Runzas. And it's no big deal. All you have to do is, you know, go out and shoot some pictures and eat lunch. And and I think the licensing, it wasn't a license, it was a buyout fee. Okay, so once again, it's like any photo you send them, they can use it over and over again. And so... And the fee was like a hundred or a hundred and fifty bucks, and they went around. And you know, I'm I'm in the loop. I don't live in Nebraska anymore, but these photographers are calling me up, and they're like, they want me to shoot this for like a hundred dollars or whatever it was, and they want to own all the pictures, and they don't have even a contract in place to. Uh, they just want the pictures, so they never gave it any thought. And, you know, they had to go through three or four photographers, but eventually they found a photographer that would take their $100 to shoot these pictures of a Runza. And so now that has been established. That's what your work is worth in Omaha, Nebraska, to the athletic. It's now somehow worth $500 million. You are the lowest man on the totem pole. That's the reality. 
Wow. And you know what? You, when you go through the athletics uh, articles on your phone, what you find is uh, USA Today Sports. And you also find uh, they use a lot of photography from the universities they're covering. You know, at least in the college. I don't pay attention to pro sports very much. But on the college side, they're just going back to the universities. And, you know, those guys are, well, they're, like you said earlier, a staff photographer. So, they're not going to make any extra money off what they're doing, huh? Well, no. Not not only do they make they don't make any extra money off of what they're doing, but how do you like it when a state institution that's supported by your tax dollars um, is giving away content that is in direct competition with you? They they are subsidizing not only your competitors, but they are devaluing the work that you do why is that okay for a state institution to uh to give that stuff away for free and we know what the we know what the staff photographers make at all these organizations all these universities you know you want to talk about low man on the totem pole these guys are making jack and they're working they're working you know five six days a week they're they're shooting everything that's that's just you know I, I have I have talked to some of them and they they do look like they're getting their asses worked off because you know what I think Nebraska has twenty two sports not twenty two but I mean you have a gob of sports for them to shoot and uh, some of them are using interns I've run into a lot of interns when I'm out uh, I mean all the interns are young people and it's interesting that I do talk to them and. You know, I usually ask them, are you planning on going into this as a career option? Because you better really think about what you're doing before you just say, I love this and I want to make a living at it. Well, see, the things that we're talking about here, um, you know, they'll, 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 they'll take somebody's money to give them whatever, a photojournalism degree or a journalism degree, but they won't tell them about how to you know, they'll never learn about licensing or negotiating a contract. Um, so these kids, they get thrown in the field and they're like, you know, the first thing they hear is, oh, we're not going to pay you, but this will really help your career because of the exposure we're going to give you. That's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, so, you know, they'll take their, they'll take their, their, uh, their tuition money, but they won't tell them, you know, how to actually earn a living. And then on the, the other side of that, they'll work them to death as interns. They'll give away their work, and they'll make it really hard for that person once they do graduate to make a living using those skills that they picked up as an intern or a student. Okay, I'm going to say this, and you can take it for what it is. I, I honestly, I don't think people care at all, other than photographers. I think when people are looking through stuff, they just go, wow, that's a photo. That's a photo. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I know. I know. And that's, and that's because we, at this point, we've given them no reason to care. Well, that's a good point. Because every photo is, I mean, look at it. Look at, I, I, and I hate to even like, okay, say you're shooting in Memorial Stadium. Look up and down the row. Everybody next to you is using the exact same gear. They're looking in the exact same direction. 
And then the play is over and they immediately go and look at the back of their cameras. There's there. This is, and, and then they all go to the, to the photo work room and they're like showing off to each other about, you know, Oh, I got this picture. Did you get that? And it's just like, where's the original vision? Where is the, where's the, where's the punk rock that's going to shake up this industry? And there's no reason to do that because um, there's no reward at the end of the tunnel. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Unless, you know, I mean, it's just, and I, I can tell you nightmare stories. I can tell you nightmare stories about the photographer who finally got that shot. And uh, I don't want to give any exact examples but it's a once in a lifetime shot and rolex wants to use it as the centerpiece of their next campaign and you know it's going to be literally quarter of a million dollar licensing fee but first they have to go to getty to make sure that you know getty doesn't have a similar shot not a better shot, but a similar shot because that's what that's the contract, you know, that this sports organization is under. And that photographer loses that licensing fee. And then that all that money goes to the uh goes to the to the uh the uh the corporation that owns Getty. Yeah. I mean it's just it's just and you know, they've Getty's got like thirty billion dollars in debt. <laughs> that they're paying out. I mean, it's, 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 it's basically anything, you know, when you talk about nobody notices, nobody gets it. Well, there's no reason for them to get it because there's, there's the people that might be motivated to do something that's above and beyond. They've been, they don't have that motivation anymore. I mean, money is a good motivator. Success is a good motivator. Being able to pay your, you know, pay your bills and feed your kids is a good motivator. So you, basically what you're saying is our sports photography has become incredibly generic. It's really just it's, it's, uh, become, it's, right. It's stop action, incredibly generic. Catch, catch this moment. It's all in perfect focus. Uh, the bokeh is beautiful. We edited all the crap out of the background that might actually be there, which is kind of bizarre because I shot Nebraska, Minnesota this year, and I noticed that I was at the same angle as somebody else, and they had edited all the Minnesota players out of the background after Nebraska had scored a touchdown. And I thought, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Because I didn't – it was bizarre. Anyway – things have gotten really generic and people aren't doing things with light. They're not doing the fun, interesting things. I guess I would think they're fun. Um, I kind of, well, I am this, not, you're, I'm not that good, but I'd like to get well, you've there. Made a great, you've made a great, you know, you're, you're better than you think, John, because you've made a point that uh, most, most photographers don't get these days. And when you know because photoshop allows you to do stuff stuff to make the perfect image okay photoshop allows you to make the perfect image in your mind's eye that you imagined what it should be right and so what they're doing is 
they're editing out. They're 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 swapping perfect and destroying any chance of being great. So everything that they edit out, everything that you know, look at okay, Rich Clarkson. Do you know Rich Clarkson? Rich no. Clarkson shot shot he's he's older now he's like 90 he's you know he's up there but he was the director of photography at the Topeka Capital Journal then he be, was the director of photography at the Denver Post and uh, a couple other places eventually went on to National Geographic he was a, a, a he was a contract photographer for Sports Illustrated so he was like a boss and a photographer at the same time meanwhile he shot something like 50 um, Final Fours, NCAA Final Four basketballs over his, tournaments over his career, you know, in a row. So like, like every Final Four since like the 1950s, like maybe 1954 was his first one. And so when you're, you go back and you look at these images, the things that you think are imperfections um, are now the things that make those images so valuable as historical documents, but also so pleasing to the eye. When you look at, you know, pictures literally 50 years ago of Wilt Chamberlain, it's like, it's not a, it's not a perfect picture. It's in black and white. It's not color. It's shot with a strobe and a, a dingy gym, you know, without TV lights but there's something magical about it. And that's what, and that's the difference between perfect and great when it comes to photography. Photoshop, the curse of Photoshop has allowed everyone to make a perfect image, but at the same time, they've traded away any chance to make a great image. And so th these people that are Photoshopping and cropping and uh, they yeah, look at, look at the photo, look at the photos from the, any football game, everything, like you said, everything's perfectly sharp. You're shooting at literally 20 frames a second now. You're almost shooting at the speed of a motion picture camera. And um, you have automatic focus. It's very, you know, very good. You got great lenses. So, you know, the quality of the out of focus stuff is nice and creamy. And at some point, it looks like you have a picture of the running back and it could just be, it could have been shot in the studio. There's no, there's no atmosphere. There's, there's no uh, scene setter. There's, you have no reference for the place and time. Think of the pictures of Johnny Rogers, you know, the terrible, terrible pictures, you know, um, this week we lost a great photographer. He was a life magazine photographer his name was Bill Ray, and you've seen his pictures. You've seen his sports pictures. You've seen the picture of Marilyn Monroe from behind singing Happy Birthday to JFK. That's his picture, for example. So, like, just be describing that, 50% of your audience knows that picture. You know, they don't know Bill, but they know the picture. So, anyways, to get back on track here, Bill's Bill is from Western Nebraska, and he used to work briefly for the Lincoln Journal Star before he went to New York City and became famous as a photographer. But, you know, famous as a photographer, like you said, it's being like the best surfer in South Dakota, right? I mean, 
who cares? You're a famous photographer. But anyway, Bill's brother, Webb Ray, still worked at the Lincoln Journal Star for years. I mean, he was the guy in the dark room. You know, when you were working out of the Lincoln Journal Star's dark room, he'd be smoking a camel next to you on the, on the, on the, uh, on the enlarger next to you. I mean, the, it was like orange light from the safe lights in the dark room and blue smoke. I mean, it was, you know, it was a workplace hazard. You take the, the dark room chemicals and the, and the, and the, the unfiltered uh, camels. I mean, you're, you know, you should be getting hazard duty for that. But anyways, Webb, Webb was the guy who'd sit at the top of the stadium with an ancient 600 millimeter, five, six Nikon lens on a Nikon F2 with a 250 frame back that literally took a 50 feet roll of triax in it. It looked like, you know, it looked like a 50 caliber, you know, machine gun or something up there. And Webb would sit up there with his camera on a tripod next to Bob Paskatch, the chief photographer at the Omaha World Herald, who had the same setup. And these guys would shoot every, a sequence of every play in the Nebraska football game. And the reason they did this, this is before TV broadcast every game, before high definition, before, you know, DVRs. And so they didn't make great pictures, but they made valuable pictures. So if you look at the, you know, Johnny Rogers run from the Oklahoma game, you know, the game of the century, that, that punt return, there was a sequence that those two guys shot, one for the Lincoln Journal, one for the Omaha World Herald, and it took up a whole page in the newspaper. And it's like, Johnny catches the punt. Johnny goes to his left. Johnny goes to his right. And there's a big white arrow behind Johnny's head following him down the field, printed in the newspaper, you know, with his name, Johnny Rogers, number 20, and pasted onto the photo. And it was just a sequence of photographs that uh, let people see that only heard the game through live. They heard Lyle Bremser. Well, that game was broadcast, you know, but they were still listening to Lyle. But that historic document of that run, that these guys would sit up there and shoot every play. And it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't even, it was far from perfect. It wasn't good. But the results they accomplished, that was great. That's great journalism. That's great newspaper photography. And if you look at those pages today, you can probably pull them up online. It's, it's a valuable historical document. You know I remember those articles because I remember uh, getting, you know, looking at the newspaper and they would lay out, you know, not just Johnny Rogers, but lay out how the entire blocking schemes worked and how, you know, holes would open in the lines. I absolutely adored that stuff because it was, I don't, it was, well, it was Nebraska football. I mean, come on. <laughs> it well, was our state <laughs> photos. And they did that, you know, I, Dave Remington, you know, they're, 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 they'll, they'll show, they, they showed pictures of 
from up above, up this top of the stadium of, of Dave Remington coming off the ball and, you know, the guys next, they'd all be named. And it was just this, this beautiful, beautiful. I mean, it wasn't, I'm not saying it's like, it's not, it's, it's not a high level of skill needed to make those pictures, but the team effort and the way it's presented in the newspaper uh, as a historical document and as a, a time capsule, it's so much more valuable than the perfect image of, you know, the running back taking the handoff and, you know, just being isolated. And, you know, now he's beautiful. It's, he's perfectly sharp, beautiful color. The bokeh is just creamy and the light is beautiful. What does that shot mean to me? You know, remember the fumble? Remember J.J. Watt's fumble in the 78 game, you know, and he fumbles on the three-yard line? And somebody made a poster of that. And it was like, how did I, I, and I'm not a photographer at that time. And I'm just like, I'm like a a sophomore in high school. I'm like, how did this guy see this? How did he make this picture? And when you look at that picture today, if you look up that old poster, if you've managed to find it, I looked at it, I, I, I stumbled across it a few years ago and I'm like, Boy, this is not a good picture. <laughs> but every high school kid had that poster. Well, nowadays you just, like you said, shoot at 20 frames a second. And if you're missing something, it's because you didn't point in the right direction. Okay, maybe that's a little simple, but you know what I mean? Well, that's <laughs> and the thing. They, how many people even know what direction to point? I mean, well, that's a little damning. No, it's it's not because if if you know, you can look at my book, um, which you know is kind of like a historical dog. That was like ten years ago. So, I Oscar went Oscar to, Game Day, two thousand ten. Farewell, right. big. Right, and so if you look book. at if you look at pictures in there of just an offensive lineman's feet digging into the artificial turf, something like this. That has no reason to exist. It has no reason to be printed in the newspaper. It barely has a reason to be printed online. It's just like, what is this? But if you've ever played the game and everybody, you know, we've all played the game. We all know what artificial turf feels like. I'm not interested in making pictures that, that uh the document just you know the game i want to i want to i want the viewer i want to unlock the viewer's memories of playing the game and what it must feel like to play it in front of ninety thousand people in memorial stadium that's what sports photography that's the goal of sports photography that if you and that's the goal with any photojournalism if the viewer can somehow see themselves have that connection that they can they can picture themselves in that same situation or understand what that person is going through you know say it's whatever a war or whatever if they can 
if they cannot dismiss that photo and see themselves somehow connected to that image, then it's a successful image. And that should be the same for sports photography. There's no reason we should dumb down sports photography because technically we have all the tools we need. True. Okay. I had a thought and it went right away. Um, I, I do. I, I still have your Husker game day book and it is an absolutely beautiful book. Uh, what you're basically saying is, and maybe I'm putting words into your mouth. There's not really going to, this isn't going to happen. These types of photos, unless that dentist in Omaha decides to become that good a photographer. Because it doesn't sound like anybody wants to pay for any of this stuff. I mean, where do you see this going? Well, you know, so I don't know if you know who David Turnley is. And I know this can be painful to hear. But uh, David David graduated. He, he walked on. He's a, football, he's, a, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, great photographer, um, world renowned. And... Um, so he he was a football player back in his days in college. He went to Michigan, and uh, Harbaugh was his buddy. And so now he's he's a professor at the University of Michigan, and he uh, he has complete access to the program, you know, unprecedented access. And so he did a book like three or four years ago. I got it sitting around here somewhere where you know it's just like beautiful black and white images of the team, um, you know, access that a person like I would, you know, I'd, I'd never get you know, with whoever, Bo or whoever, you know. Um, but he has this personal connection. And so he made this beautiful book. And, you know, granted, it's, you know, the Wolverine. So there is that. But uh, if that was of Nebraska football, it would be one of your prized possessions. It's that good. And so you look at what PJ Fleck is doing in Minnesota. Is there, I mean, he's a colorful guy. You know, anybody that goes out in the middle of a windy lake and is rowing a boat, there's a, there's a story to be told there in pictures. It's a visual story. It's a, it's a personal story that could be told there. You know, I don't know if you can, you know, Michigan. Yeah. You can sell, whatever 10,000 books I don't know if you can sell 10,000 books of Minnesota football but I'm saying there is to answer your question there is ways to do it it's just very rare it's very it's 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 uh I don't want to be you know whoever whoever I mean who's who's the uh who's the poor man's prince knockoff I mean Morris day i don't know whoever that guy is i don't want to be that guy i want to be the prince of photography i don't want to be the the morris day in the time of photography right so that's as a photographer that's my goal i don't i don't want to i don't want to be second or third or fourth i want to make images that you can't ignore you know a buddy of mine he's like this is back in the day in New York City. It's like, you know, you think you're, you know, a photographer. It's like you're not competing against other photographers. You're competing against every visual artist out there. 
end of the day. At the end of the day, your legacy, when you're fighting for, you know, space on that gallery or museum wall, you're you're competing with every every artist out there. Well, I need to get better. We're gonna. You started. <laughs> a, a, <laughs> I do need to get better. You know, I I um, I need to get out more too, but. You started a YouTube channel called Talking Pictures, and you're doing interviews with photojournalists, photographers. What what was the impetus to start the channel, and why are you doing this? Well, like the last one I I did, I did I just went up like yesterday. It was with Frank Fournier, and Frank is a photographer that nobody's ever heard about. And he's won the biggest awards in the world. And he's a quiet guy. And he's like, he's not on Facebook. He's not on Instagram. And this, there's a whole generation or almost two generations of photographers out there now who don't know who Frank is. And he has this, he has a, a, a gallery show. It, it's opening today, actually, in San Francisco at the Leica Gallery. And so he's, so it's all about people like Frank, these people that have so much knowledge and they have so much practical information to share with photographers today, not just photographers, but anybody that's interested in journalism or history, the stories he tells, uh, all of them tell, you know, uh, Tony Vaccara is like, he was a photographer, he's a soldier, uh, a D-Day soldier, World War II, 82nd Airborne. Um, these guys have stories to tell guys and gals that are, that are just being lost to history, a lot of it. And it's knowledge that, um, you know, I, I learned from people like this and they shared their knowledge and I just want to capture that because I know what I learned from people like this. And I think other people should have that opportunity. And so it's very low tech. It's just, you know, there's nothing fancy about it. But, uh, you know, these people tell their stories and there's, it's helpful to every photographer. I mean, whether you're doing journalism or photography or are you just walking around, this is just, it's priceless, it's priceless. And I just wanted to capture it. That's why I do it. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, I mean, this probably isn't, well, one of the things I've noticed is that when you are down, like on the first baseline, those guys will all work together. You know what I mean? All the photographers, it's very rare that you run into a guy that's a complete jerk or, you know, is constantly in the way or something, stuff like that. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, I guess yeah, I need to go back and look at some of those. Uh, Cause I, like I said, I need to get better. Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, we all want to get better, but so often, you know, I get, I get, I get frustrated. You know, I get frustrated with photographers. You know, the first, the first game of the season, you'll have somebody come up to you and say, like, you know, they're trying to be cool. And they'll say, oh, here we go, another football season, blah, blah, blah. I can't wait to be – I'm like, hold it. 
you got the best seat in the house. There's 90,000 people that would like to be sitting right where you are and you're bored or the photographer that like thinks it's cool to, you know, tailgate before they come into the game and go through the game, you know, you know, half drunk. I mean, what is up with that? What, this is an opportunity when, you know, and, and people don't realize, you know, say you're shooting the Olympics, uh, say you're shooting the Super Bowl. You're, you're sitting 10 feet outside, you know, outside the, the field of play and people that are 20 or 30 feet behind you paid $20,000 for that ticket. And you're sitting in front of them. They have to look over your shoulder to see the game. You got, you got, a, front seat, yeah. you got a front row seat to history. And whether you're, you're shooting you know, on Capitol Hill or you're shooting the Super Bowl or an Olympics, or you know, I don't care if it's like a flood and you know, and on the on the Platte River. You, what an honor that is to 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 be witness to that and just record that, whatever it is. You know, I mean, that's that's my attitude. That's wherever I am. It's like I'm just like it's like a gift to be there. <laughs> I was shooting the final four of volleyball last year when Nebraska got into the game, and this dude from Stanford is literally talking to me about politics while the game's going on. And I finally just turned and looked at him and said, dude, there's a game right now that we're watching. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you trying to rile me up with, with politics stuff? Uh, okay. Should we go into anything about conflict photography? And why we you can might talk, John, we can talk about what, we can talk with about whatever you like. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty open book, you know, I'm also very opinionated. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm sorry to be so opinionated, but you know, I just, I don't know. That's all right. I guess you know, I'm getting you're, old. you're, you're no, you're professional. You're, you're, you're passionate about what you do. And to be honest with you, I mean, I'm getting old too, but, you know, after a while, there are not a lot of people our age that probably stay passionate about their profession. I hate to say that, but that's the honest to God truth. The phrase conflict photography is used a lot more now instead of war photography. Your reaction to right. that? Is it because we're cleansing? Well, okay, so it's, it's, it's kind of funny. And, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing funny about conflict or war photography or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it reminds me of a story, you know, that Frank told in this latest, on yesterday's blog. He's like, he's telling this story about driving to Sarajevo and he rents a car in Milan. And so immediately I know what's happening. I'm like, so you're renting a car in Italy to take the, to, to the former Yugoslavia. I'm like, did you tell the rental car agency where you're going? He's like, no, of course not. You don't tell them when, when you rent it, and you certainly don't tell them when you come back. And so <laughs> he didn't know the way to Sarajevo, and he like gets directions. And it's, it's kind of, it, was a, it was an infamous spot in Sarajevo right outside of the, uh, the airport, which was called Sniper's Alley. And, you know, you drive through there as fast as you could, so Frank gets these 
gets these uh, gets these directions, and the and the person giving the directions, like now when you get past the airport, you got to floor it, and you got to go as fast as you can. And so, and he did that, and he's getting shot at, and his and his, he's getting bullet holes and shrapnel all over his car, his rental car. But it's really icy out, and so at the end of the run, he's like spinning out. But luckily, the uh, the guards at the checkpoint at the end of the run, who are like out of the sniper's way, they were too drunk to properly shoot him. So as he's spinning <laughs> off and he's going to the, you know, and it's it's hilarious stuff like that. I'm just, it, it makes you laugh. You know, it's it's that. I, I mean, there's no. There's no real, I mean, it's, 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 it's conflict photography, war photography, whatever you want. It's, 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 an, you know, you know, Hemingway called it a movable feast, but it really it's, it's kind of like, it's just like happenstance, happenstance and accidents is what it is. It's just like, we're all getting through this stuff just by you know the hair on our teeth and the grace of god and it's just like and it's funny and it's it's uh tragic and but to call yourself a war photographer to call yourself a conflict photographer now you know jim knockway probably the greatest war photographer of our generation he he wants to be called a peace photographer now and i'm just like I don't know if that's what he said. Something like a non-conflict. I don't know. He basically, wants to be a peace photographer. I'm like Jim. You never, you never photographed any peace in your whole career. It's all been bang bang. It's all been tragedy. It's all been been heartbreak. That's what, and that's what you're. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to like. We're not supposed to sugarcoat this study the trick with war photography the same thing i was talking about before it's like you have to you have to put the viewer in that person's shoes okay it's like the the walk through you know walking a mile in somebody else's moccasins you got to be able to do that when it comes to like you know the the refugee in Sarajevo, you got to put your, you got to be able to put the viewer in that person's position. And war photography, conflict photography, peace photography, the only tools that you need besides a camera and a good pair of shoes is empathy. That's all this is about. And so there's photographers that are very successful but they make robotic images of conflict. And then there's photographers who make you stop and just count your own blessings and count your toes and whatever else that you still have, um, your children, the, the blessings, everything in your life, they can do that with a camera. And those people, I don't, you know, I don't care what you call them. You can call them peace, you know, I'm happy to call Jim a peace photographer. Um, but what they are, you know, they're in the tradition of Goya. You know, talk about you're competing with every visual artist out there. Jim Nakwe is, you know, he's competing with 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 Goya. 
when you when when the history of the world is written a hundred years from now, um, those the images that he made will be right up alongside there on the museum wall. I don't know. I don't know if you, I answered your question, John. Sorry. Probably, but how do you do this without being consumed by it? Oh, you don't. <laughs> you don't. Okay. You sim I mean, I you know, I, I can laugh and I can giggle and you know, if you don't if you're not able to do that, then you're really you're really in trouble. Um you cannot you know, everybody's screwed up. <laughs> everybody's messed up. It's like there are, you know, people, people, you talk about things that, you know, you you can't unsee. A war photographer might have 10 of those experiences before breakfast. And so, not all of them make the picture. And so why do they do it? It's like being called to the land like a farmer. Foolish. We're foolish people. We literally, we, we honestly think we can change the world. There's a long pause there. We can't change the world, Ken? <laughs> no, we absolutely can change. That's the secret. That's the secret. So you go into this with this foolish notion that you're, that politicians are going to take notice, and sometimes they actually do, you know, um, and that, that the world will be moved, and sometimes they actually are. You know, I can, you know, you can you can talk about uh, Nick Utz, or you can talk about, you know, uh, what's his face? Oh, Eddie Adams, John, uh, uh there, there, there's plenty of single photo, you know, if you, if I say napalm girl to you, right. you know that That's, image. Yeah. And then uh, okay. Eddie Adams took the photo of the Viet Cong prisoner being executed. Right. And so Ron Haviv, you know, he made a picture of this, this vice president candidate getting, getting uh, beaten up by a mob in Panama. And, that is, you know, that was kind of used for justification to invade Panama and take Noriega out, things like this. Um, so, yeah, your images, it happens that they actually do make a difference. But whether or not those images make a difference, what you've done as a war photographer, okay, um, you've survived that, you've done your best to to, to to tell this story in a visual way, um, what you've done at the end of the day, you've changed yourself and you've changed the people directly around you. And that's where it starts. And so, you know, you want, you, you know, so I, I guess what I'm saying, we, we basically go in there thinking we're going to change the world, but, you know, on a, on a grand scale, but what we're really working on is a micro scale most of the time. In other words, you're not going to change the world. You're going to change the world you touched around you. Well, yeah, and that's you know that's a pretty that's a pretty big deal. It is. 
I, I don't know if I can ask you anything else. Actually, I could ask you about three, four hours more worth of questions, but uh, we're at a little over an hour, and I usually try to keep these things at an hour. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we can talk again sometime. Anytime, is there any, guys, you know. Is, is there anything else that you want to add to this before we go? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic guy, and I know that sports photography, editorial photography, news photography, photojournalism, it's not really, it's not really at a, we're not working at our high point, okay? We're not working at, at that level that we should be working at as, as, as an industry. But uh, I think that tide will turn. I, I'm working towards that shift. You know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to help. And I don't, you know, I don't want to toot my own, own horn or brag or anything. But I, and I, I don't think education is the word. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to help people find their, find their own vision. And I know there's, you know, I know the impact. When you talk about still photography, think about what you're really, you, you, you don't got, you don't have motion, you don't have sound. You've got a single image, a two-dimensional image on a page. Somehow, that medium that has all these built-in disadvantages is still the most powerful media, visual medium that we have today. Something there's a power that's you know it's kind of it's kind of in a lull right now, but but this uh, this still photography thing it's still got a lot of life in it. I think it's I think we've you know I think we're looking towards you know something good in the future. But we're going to end on a, on that positive note. Okay. So. I usually have a script here that I read, which goes like, uh, this has been our episode with Ken Jureski. Uh Thank you for listening, and go Big Red. And then we end. Go Big Red, brother.